This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. You can find it on page 291 in the Bibles in your rows, and it's also printed in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along as I read. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my commandment and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning, New City. My name is Zach Meyer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I tend to spend most of my time with our middle and high school students. So if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service or at one of our upcoming events. Uh, but the series that we've been working through over the past couple weeks, we have called The Rise and Fall of Solomon. And for the most part, we've been looking at that first half, right? The, the rise of Solomon. We've seen that he has ultimately removed any kind of rivals to his throne. In fact, David, his father, uh, really helped him out with that and set him up. We also see that they had the hugest army uh, that they had up to that point, that they were constantly or almost constantly in a state of peace, and that the kingdom was actually at its largest it had ever been. Uh, he had uh, endeavored to build these massive uh, splendor, uh, buildings of splendor that included palaces, homes, temples. And on top of that, he was a skilled naturalist, a, a scholar, a poet, and he just so happened to be the wisest person in the world. I like to refer to him as kind of the Renaissance man before the Renaissance, if you will. And one commenter actually described Solomon's kingdom here as the height of the Old Testament promise that was made to Abraham. And just to let you see that, that's from Genesis 12, and this is it. I'll read it to us. And I will make, this is God talking to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." 
And we actually saw this on kind of full display last week as we saw the Queen of Sheba make her way to Jerusalem uh, to see uh, what had been so mighty, what had been so important among them. And they see that it's Solomon's wisdom that has kind of emanated from the Lord their God. Again, this is kind of everything working out according to the promise, the nations coming to see and to know God and to see that God was truly blessing the nations. But today we get to that second part of uh, the name of our series, the fall of Solomon. We get to chapter 11. And the best way I think for us to kind of characterize uh, how to understand this section is in the form of tragedy. Uh, Not just kind of generally in the form of tragedy, like it's just something sad that happened or unfortunate that happened, but more so in the literary sense of it. A good definition that I found is that tragedy is a story in which a person or group makes a wrong decision and falls into bitter disgrace. Uh, If you like plays, you can think of plays like Antigone, uh, the Greek tragedy, or maybe if you're more into Shakespeare, you can think of uh, plays like Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth. Uh, But if you don't consider yourself to be a thespian of sorts, uh, you can also just look around you. Uh, Look at the rich and the famous. You see this with people like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Bernie Madoff, you know, once great people who made the wrong decisions and are now into bitter disgrace. Uh, But if sports is your thing, I'll pick on my team here for a second. I'm a big Leicester City fan. That's an English soccer team uh, who uh, just a few short years ago won kind of like the top championship you can win. uh, And then a number of years later was relegated to the league underneath them. It's wrong decisions that are leading to disaster. And that particular tragedy I'm still feeling. So in many ways, you can kind of look at Solomon's life in our passage today, and it can kind of function as a warning to us to avoid his mistakes. Solomon, in some sense, is this kind of larger-than-life figure. He's kind of like a caricature of sorts, right? Like big parts of him are drawn out really largely and big for us to see. So in the same way that we can see his wisdom on full display and learn from his wisdom, we can also see his follies, his big follies on full display and learn a little bit about our own. And so in the same way that we study his wisdom, actually studying his errors can actually be a huge benefit to us. And if I was going to kind of say, like, what's the main thing that I want us to see in this passage, although we'll have three points that we're going to look at in a second, this is the main thing that I want you to see, that this passage is ultimately a contrast, a contrast between the heart of man, which is wayward, and the heart of God, which is faithful. And we'll be looking at this kind of through these three points. First, the love of God the heart of man, and then the rule of Jesus. So kind of hopping into our first point, the love of God, uh, I I kind of want to give us some context. Uh, To really, you know, understand this passage, we could spend quite a bit of time looking at the ways that it's littered with Old Testament references and kind of builds upon some of the things that we had seen previously. Uh, However, I just kind of want to pull out three things that I think will help us really engage with the text today. And the first one of those things is God's calling. God had called Solomon to be king, and I think it's really easy for us to hear the word king and kind of fill in some ideas of what we think about when we hear the word king, right? Uh, For me, I know I kind of interject a lot of like medieval themes and stuff like that. But ultimately, uh, the king and God's king in particular, the main call that he had was to function as the ideal Israelite. And what that kind of means is that he was to mediate the rule of God amongst Israel, the people of Israel, and even further than that, to the nations. 
So this was his calling specifically, even though it also was a broad call to Israel as a nation. And in many ways, Solomon was kind of the one who is most responsible for living out that Old Testament promise that we had talked about. That Abraham, right, that God had given Abraham that we quoted earlier, that ultimately he would be God's blessing and through that lead Israel to be a blessing to the world. You can kind of think about this as God's plan to display his love to the world. That it kind of started in concentric circles, if you will, with the king and bled over to the people and then outward towards the nations. That working through them, the love of God would be on display for the whole world to behold and to be drawn toward relationship with God. And when you think about it in that context, you can kind of think, man, being king's a tall order. That's a tough task, right? But one of the things that we see over and over again in Scripture is that God doesn't just call people to particular tasks. He also equips them. And so when we look in 1 Kings, we can actually see a variety of ways that he has equipped Solomon. Uh, One of the first things, and this actually comes more from Deuteronomy or Exodus, but we would know that Solomon actually knew the law thoroughly. Uh, That as a king of Israel, they would have to actually write word for word the entirety of the first five books of the Old Testament. They would not only have to write it, but they'd actually have to carry it around with them to study it daily, to be bathed in it, to know it backwards and forward. And so we know that he would be prepared enough to know what was prohibited, that he shouldn't return back to Egypt that he shouldn't have many wives, that he shouldn't develop an excess of wealth, that he shouldn't have amassed a number of horses, because all those things are a way that he could put his trust in something else other than Yahweh. We also see that he has direction and encouragement from his predecessor, who is his father, who basically told him, this is the way you should live in relationship with the Lord. This is the way to go. Don't fall off to the left or to the right. And beyond that, he's gifted with wisdom beyond anyone before him or since then. And this one, this one feels like the cherry on top to me, that he actually, at least as far as we know, got two meetings with God, right? That's, that's pretty amazing. And so we see uh, that God's relationship with Solomon isn't just a mere feeling of love that kind of calls him, but it's actually an act of love that equips him, that provides for him, that establishes him. And in light of that love, that act of love, it might shock us, and this is the third thing I kind of want to draw out, that when we read in verse 9 of God's anger toward Solomon, how can anger be a part of God's plan for the nations? Right? If, if God is love, how do we see anger coming from the heart of God here? And I think what we fail to understand often is that anger can kind of act as an underliner or highlighter, if you will, to the very presence of love. And that's what this anger does here in verse 9, is highlighting and putting in bold God's love for his king, for his people, and for the nations. Uh, A great uh, kind of quote that I found from C.S. Lewis is this, that anger is the fluid that that love bleeds when it gets cut. In other words, when you really love something and it's getting harmed, it's right to be angry. It's right to move in towards it. It's right to come in and defend it. And that's what we see God doing. When God sees how sin tears us apart, he doesn't sit off distantly, but he moves in to act and to rescue. He confronts, and in that confrontation, he is ultimately revealing the depths of his love. And so we can have all this as kind of broader context, but how does this help us, right? How do do we apply this to our lives? Because as far as I can tell, right, we, we aren't kings. We don't live in the Old Testament, 
and I don't think we're building any temples to Molech. So how does this kind of come into our lives? And I think even though all those things are true, that, that, that we can really apply this to our lives. And first of that is when we look at calling, that each of us are called to particular roles, positions, relationships, and stations in life. And in particular, for those of us who are in Christ, we know that we are called to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Josh actually pointed this out when he was talking about Solomon's power, that it is actually helpful to see his power because it highlights that though ours is less, that we do have power as well, that we actually influence the world around us, that we can actually shape reality, even though it might be in smaller forms than Solomon. So much like Solomon, we're called to steward our power at home, at work, with our families, with our friendships, with our children, and kind of in the public marketplace of ideas as well. And you might even hear that, and kind of similarly when we were talking about Solomon's calling, kind of go, ooh, that's a tall task. How do, how do we do something like that? And similarly for us, I think the good news is, is we're not only called, we're also provided for. We're equipped. And these are just four things that I kind of want to kind of pull out for us to see how we're equipped in our callings. The first of that is that we are given the Spirit of God. If we kind of flash forward into the New Testament, we actually see Jesus say that he would, the Father would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would come in his name and who would teach us all things concerning Jesus and to bring to remembrance all that he had taught. And in addition to that, we also have the Word of God, which is living and active, which is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces the divisions of soul and spirit joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And on top of that, we're also given kind of what I'm going to call the tools for mission, the gifts of God, that though God be one, he has a variety of gifts that he gives to his people for working out the kingdom all around them. And then finally, we also have a context to discover those gifts, to refine them, to be encouraged in them, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And that's within the people of God. I think this is one that we often miss, right? We aren't just saved into isolated relationship with God. We're actually saved into a people. That's one of the reasons why the local church is so powerful and important for us and good for our hearts. So in our callings, we actually see that we are not without provision, much like Solomon was not without provision. But what about God's anger? You know, And while it's true that those of us who are in Christ, there is no more wrath of God placed upon us that has been buried with Jesus and is no more, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't get angry with us. And though the anger of God is definitely unpopular today, I think it's something that I I, I don't think it's something that we'd want to live without. And here's why. Because the anger of God actually reveals that we have a God who cares deeply about us that he cares about injustice and the brokenness in the world enough that he's going to intervene when we make something else the center of our lives, when the spheres of our influence drift away from him and to ourselves, that we have a God who's willing to intercede. And you'll actually begin to notice that if you have a God who never confronts you, you might not have a God at all, but you might just be worshiping yourself and using other means to make you comfortable and feel like you're in control. That's something we're all guilty of. And so we must remember in this context, when we see that anger, that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So far from pushing us away, this anger should actually reveal to us the depth of love and help us respond to him as our Heavenly Father. 
but our hearts have a hard time navigating us. It can be really difficult. And that brings us to our second point, the heart of man. Right? The heart of man can be tricky, um, and I, I, I kind of have this uh, one thing I want to show us real quick that a friend sent me the other day, uh, and I think it's a, a funny way to kind of represent uh, Solomon, right? Uh, depending on what kind of book you look at him in, you see like he's a totally different character, and this is actor Willem Dafoe uh, in three different movies uh, with three different feels. And so kind of when you're reading Solomon in different books, you're kind of like, this guy feels like he's kind of all over the place, right? And even you could see that in, in First Kings. But I think instead of kind of this being a contradiction of sorts, I think it's actually an honest look at the complexity of our hearts. Then one season you can actually be led in one way and in another season be led in another. And actually, if you kind of zoom in and look at our passage and pay attention to what's repeated throughout, you'll see not only what moved Solomon to his failure, but also what is the central point of our text, and that is the heart. Six times throughout our passage, we see that our uh, attention should be oriented towards the turning of Solomon's heart. And uh, kind of to understand what the heart is in, in a biblical usage, you can think about it as the willing, the loving, the thinking center of a person. Another definition, this is one that Paul Tripp uses, uh, is that the heart is also the control center of our lives. And in his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie K.A. Smith, he, he, he makes the biblical argument that we're slowly shaped by the things that we most desire. That over time, it isn't the things that we give intellectual assent to, but it's actually the things that command our affections, that direct our choices, that direct how we live, that direct who we become. And it's kind of through that lens that I think we can actually look at Solomon and understand this complex character. We can understand how someone who is as called, equipped, and prepared for kingship could so totally blow it despite the outward looks of success. And the attention that the author kind of draws towards Solomon's many wives and his old age kind of is supposed to highlight that this was a repeated choice that Solomon made over time, right? You don't marry 700 princesses in one go. That happens over time, right? You don't build so many temples all at once. That happens over time. And it's meant to highlight that it wasn't his old age that made him fall away. It wasn't the women around him that made him fall away. It was his own heart, and he bears that responsibility alone. And just to make a side kind of comment on this, the, the prohibition against marrying non-Israelites in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily concerned about the ethnicity of other nations, but it was more so concerned about their heart's allegiance, in the ancient Near East, uh, each people group had a variety of gods that they worshipped. And God knows that marriage is such an intimate covenantal space that it's very easy for our hearts to go after the gods of other nations. And so that's what he commands to his Israelites. And you can imagine how this kind of happened for Solomon, right? How he got pulled away. Right? With a successful kind of growing kingdom grows the anxiety of keeping it together, the need to create stability, and using these kind of political marriages, because remember, these are all princesses, right? So these are like the, the daughters of kings. He's, he's using political marriages to kind of protect his kingdom. And in the process of trying to appease his wives and also his, you know, fathers-in-laws who are around, around their nation, he starts building temples, trying to appease them. And according to, this is what one, one commentator says, he says that according to the practice of the ancient near the East, all of that is praiseworthy and shows a mastery of international politics and diplomacy, right? It looks good on the outside, but inward, what was he doing? He was making slow compromises of finding the stability and success of the kingdom and what he would do and what he could accumulate over what God had promised 
and would provide. So ever so slowly, Solomon's heart turns from the giver of the gift itself to the gift, which was the kingdom. So how could this happen to the wisest person that ever lived? Who also, remember, had at least two encounters with the living God. I think the answer to this question is summarized well in this one quotation that the gifts of God never operate independently or automatically, but always according to the affections of our hearts. And I think that's the lesson for us. That it doesn't matter how gifted we might be. It doesn't necessarily matter uh, how much uh, we've seen God do in our lives thus far. That we're all very vulnerable. That our hearts are vulnerable things and can actually turn away. And this text kind of points to the complexities and the ambiguities in the human response to God's gifts. And it challenges us to look at our own situation. It It helps us to question our values and our priorities as we're on our own path giving kind of this other perspective that what we might say is normal is actually maybe going in the wrong direction. So let's flip it back on us, right? What are some of the things, the good gifts that God has provided that our lives can slowly become more about than our Father? Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it your finances? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it your GPA? Ministry? Maybe even the church? Each of these are good things that were made for us. Uh, they were made because they, they know this is God knowing what we need. But ultimately, they cannot occupy the primary place in our hearts. And quoting Tim Keller, this is what he says about these things. He says that they are intrinsic to our being made in God's image. And if God is second place in your life and one of them, one of those other things is first, you're cooked. Your life begins to fall apart. These things are candidates for first place because they are so great. We tend to navigate towards the good things, but we make them the ultimate thing. Uh, And the acclaimed uh, television series, Breaking Bad, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching through, but you you meet this character, his name is Walter White. Uh, And kind of out of a desperation to provide for his family, he kind of starts making, uh, you know, concedes parts of himself to greater and greater depths of depravity until one day he kind of wakes up and he is an actual functioning drug lord. And the whole time, every time he does things and kind of gives these, like, makes these bad decisions, he always gives the excuse, I'm doing this for my family. I need to protect my family. This is for my family. And then one day, kind of towards the end of the series, he actually is having a conversation with his wife after his life and the lives of many others have fallen apart. And he says this, he says, all these things I did, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. It made me feel really alive. Scripture declares that our hearts, Solomon's, yours, the sky up here behind the mic, that each of us have hearts that because of sin tend to pull away from God and put ourselves at the center of our lives and to use an excuse of all the good things to do so. Or it's a reminder of what Jeremiah says, that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can really understand it? Well, that kind of should launch us into our next point, which is the rule of Jesus, which makes us ask the question, if this is the state of our hearts, then what hope do we actually have? And for Solomon, the text doesn't actually tell us what the end result was. It doesn't tell us if Solomon repented or what the outcome of his relationship was with God. And you have different scholars who will say different things, but I think ultimately you don't really have a for certain answer. But I think it would be misleading for us to zoom in on Solomon here. For For our eyes, actually the thing that's supposed to be drawn to is actually to see God's response, right? 
Instead of trying to figure out what did Solomon do so I can do the right thing, instead it actually draws us to how God is interacting with Solomon. And we see that starting in verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of, your, of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And in this, we, we see three things. We see uh, that God is initiating in relationship with Solomon. We see that he is demonstrating justice, and we also see that he's demonstrating mercy. So in the face of Solomon's repeated sin, we see God continuing to initiate relationship with him, right? The king had just committed high treason against God, and yet God is still here in relationship. That should be a wake-up call to the mercy of God, even in interacting with someone who sins. He shows up. He's going to be there. Secondly, though, it also demonstrates the justice that God brings forward. He lets Solomon know that there are real-world consequences for his sin that will not only affect his life, but the effect of, that will affect his family and also the nation at large. And yet, even in this, God demonstrates his mercy. If you pay attention to this, he continues to say that he will sustain the promise that he actually made to Abraham and to David, that through Israel, the blessing of God would continue to go to the nations and that the son of David would be on the throne. Now, a pastor in our denomination, Walter Henniger, actually kind of compares God here to a parent who tells his kid that they won't get dessert unless they eat their peas. And it's kind of a straightforward, clear communication about the rules uh, and the consequences. And it's not like he's saying, if you don't eat your peas, I'm canceling Christmas, right? It's, it's within the realm of a response to him not following the rules. But here, God, and he says this, he says that God is kind of like a parent. He sends his kid to bed without dessert, but still climbs in bed to read him a bedtime story. You see the justice and mercy of God come together here. And all of these, right, all of these, God's initiative, his justice, his mercy are all meant to cast our eyes forward to the king who would come, whose heart that would not be faithless, but faithful. To the one who would know actually how to wield wisdom because his heart would remain true. To the true king who could actually mediate the rule of God to the nations and to bring us to God. That we actually see that Jesus Christ is the greater Solomon of our salvation, whose heart never turned away from God, but actually kept on loving him until the very end, and who likewise will keep on loving us until we get to glory. And that is good news, friends. But it's also good news because we don't have to wait until glory to actually get the benefits of our salvation. I think in the same way that habit kind of turned Solomon's heart slowly, uh, towards sin and away from God, that habit can actually help us turn our hearts towards God. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually up in the balcony waiting for communion to start, and I was just mulling over a question that I had in my head, which is this, is like, how do people change, right? And that's a big question. We all kind of deal with that sometimes. Like, how do I change? What's that process look like? And as I was looking at the Lord's table, it kind of hit me. I was like, this is it. It's through the habit, it's through the ritual of coming over and over again to be reminded of God's love for us, right? And I know that the idea of habit isn't like a like earth-shattering new idea that you could probably go out to a thousand different self-help books out there and they'd say the same thing. But I think when we understand the content of it, it actually is where the difference lies. 
That when we have, again, the things that God has provided with his spirit, his word, his gifts, and his people, we can actually recognize that participating in these things and making them have it is much more than kind of some mere moralism or some way to kind of earn God's grace. But instead, it's actually trusting God. It's trusting God that he will do what he has promised through the means that he promised to do so. And that's why it's such an important thing for us to be bathing in God's word, to be practicing nearness to the spirit, to be in community, doing life and worship with a local church. All of that is us acting and walking out trust in our father and ultimately can help us from when our hearts turn. And so though we don't know the end of Solomon's story, this chapter, I think, helps us to look at ourselves and ask some questions to make us ask the question, what am I trusting in? And that when we find that we've had shifted allegiances in our hearts to something other than God, how can I turn back to him? And ultimately, the thing that is highlighted over and over and over again throughout Scripture is that the way we do that is through the faithfulness of Jesus, our King. He is the one who makes it possible for us to be faithful in our repentance and in our turning our hearts back to him. So my question for you all this morning is, will you hear the love of God this morning to you? That his reign and his rule over our lives is the very thing that our hearts need. Can this help you to kind of doubt the false things that you tend to put your hope in and help you turn towards him? Because it's the only complete unbridled love of God that can actually dislodge the, the things that we love outside of him. And this morning, I hope you see God's initiative, his justice, and his mercy towards you in Jesus. That through his word, Jesus is once again speaking his love towards you and reminding you that he has given it all and he will give it all for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your initiating, providing, and confronting love. We ask that you would use your spirit, your word, your gifts, and your people to do in us what we cannot. That through them, your saving grace would help our hearts to believe you even more and more. Help us to see Jesus as exactly what we need. Help us to obey out of the joy of participating in your good kingdom work. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.